Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Could there be another UK referendum on leaving the European Union? Today, we heard from Prime Minister Theresa May, who seemed to put that squarely back on the table, which really raises questions uh, about whether this time, maybe, this is going to happen. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, uh, joining us now from London. Therese, what, what actually happened today? Hi, Lisa. Well, this was May's last roll of the dice. So talks with the Labour Party broke down last week. May has promised to bring her withdrawal agreement bill, which is the bill that implements the Brexit deal, to Parliament next week. And she needed to do something uh, quite dramatic to overcome the wall of opposition she has faced in Parliament, which has delivered three defeats of her Brexit deal. So what she's done is promised uh, a number of measures, some of which are not going to be controversial. So environmental protection levels, maintaining at the same level as the EU, workers' rights uh, being aligned with the EU. But the, the, the sort of headline is that she has given the MPs a vote on whether to hold a second referendum. And she is promising some kind of customs compromise. She didn't tell. Uh, she didn't tell us today what that would be, but she has said it will be a temporary customs union uh, type compromise rather than the permanent one that the uh, Labour Party had asked for. But Therese, there's a catch here, right? I mean, this doesn't something have to happen first before this can all occur. Well, there's always a catch uh, <laughs> with, with Brexit. Uh, the withdrawal bill has to go into a second reading, which allows the MPs to make amendments to it so that uh, so, so that, that all of these different changes that different MPs want uh, can be uh, can be put forth. It has to be approved uh, to be put forth forward to the MPs, which it probably will because it's being changed substantially. But, you know, I think the real question is whether she's overcome enough of the opposition from both the Labour Party and from her conservative backbenches to cobble together a majority here. Um, We've yet to see the reaction. We've yet to see what the exact details are. We don't know how Thursday's European parliamentary elections are going to play out. But just looking at it, you know, from a few minutes after she's spoken. It's really hard to see how this does enough. My one caveat is it depends on fear. How much do MPs fear no deal? How much do they fear a Jeremy Corbyn leadership if you're a conservative voter? How much do they fear Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which has been rising in the polls? If there's enough fear, maybe she has a chance. It's interesting when you talk about the reaction. I'm looking at the pound and the initial reaction, just at the concept of a second referendum, was incredible. It was a spike in the pound versus the dollar. Uh, That has since retreated almost entirely as people look through the the fine print and see that, you know what, this is just a carrot to try to get some MPs through this process to at least not totally snub their uh, nose on voting yet again. Does this make, does what happened today and Theresa May's proposal make it more likely that there'll be a second referendum? Or is it just basically uh, paying lip service and trying to throw a bone uh, enough to get this thing through? Well, I would say a second referendum has become marginally more likely 
both after her speech, but even before that, because a, a new Tory leader, she has said she will step down. There is a, a reasonable presumption that a hard Brexiter, someone who wants a hard no deal exit, will take her place. If that happens, if we get to October 31st, if Parliament somehow refuses to allow a no deal, there is still a likelihood that this could go to another vote before it goes to a general election, which both parties want to avoid now. So I think the chances of a second referendum are getting a little bit stronger. So, uh, uh, Therese, what is the future of Theresa May right now? How long does she have left, would you guess? Well, she has very little time left. She will probably announce her uh, a timetable for her departure once this vote happens. But she has said she will go regardless. So, in, you know, even if her dream scenario uh, plays out and she gets a Brexit deal through, she has still announced that she will leave. So I think we are likely to see, you know, the leadership race is already underway. We may very well see a new Tory party leader and a new prime minister before the end of the summer. We know that uh, several members of the European Commission and the European Union have supported another referendum, would like to see this whole thing go away, and the UK just simply rejoin the European Union. Are they involved at all in this whole process uh, as it sort of muddles through Parliament? Well, we'll have to see what sort of reaction we get there. But from the list of 10 changes that she announced today, I couldn't see any that would really uh, bother the EU. They will, you know, they were pleased that there were cross-party talks. And I am and, and I think there was a measure of dismay when they broke down. Um, I think the EU is sort of braced for the worst. They're braced for Theresa May uh, leaving uh, the scene and for a hard Brexiter taking her place. So th- I, th- I think they'll be They'll be happy to see one last roll of the dice and and hopeful that it uh, turns up either uh, agreement to her deal or possibly a move toward a second referendum. But at this stage, I don't think uh, on on any side uh, anyone is counting on that happening. Well, Theresa, is is there a front runner to replace uh, Theresa May? I think the front runner we'd have to say is Boris Johnson. He is uh, uh, the best. best known uh, conservative figure. He's the one that a lot of Tories believe is best placed to take on Jeremy Corbyn and now, you know, Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which is uh, winning over a lot of conservative votes. And of course, he is a real Brexiter who has uh, uh, advocated leaving uh, even with no deal. So he would be amenable uh, to uh, neg- to either not negotiating at all or negotiating a, a new arrangement. But he would be uh, the he would be certainly the preferred choice of the Conservative Party members. And it is likely they who will get to choose because the parliamentary party would submit two names to the membership. And the membership um, are are pretty unequivocally for Boris. Just 30 seconds. Boris Johnson, uh, Nigel Farage. Could either of them win? Could either of them win? Win the full election, yeah. uh, Win in a general election. For Farage, it's still a big uphill battle. Britain's parliamentary system is a first-past-the-post system, so small parties don't tend to do well. But that said, I've just seen him uh, in the West Midlands. He has exactly those ambitions. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, thank you so much calling in from London. Well, rising trade tensions with China have roiled financial markets over the past several weeks, yet they are still holding on to double-digit gains in the S&P. To get a sense of where we go from here, we turn to Jonathan McKay. Uh, John is head of sales for the Wealth Management Solutions at Schroeder's, uh, based in New York City. John, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, it's been a kind of a bumpy last couple of weeks as the trade tensions have kind of come back into investors' focus. How does that fit into your view of the equity markets currently? 
Uh, thanks, Paul, for having me. And uh, shout out to your optimism over a or excitement over a second potential second referendum in the UK. <laughs> it's been my call. Uh, share, <laughs> share, I share that excitement. So our view is that the the market should be lower. Um, specifically U.S. markets. I think there's way too much optimism over the reaction function of um, both policymakers from a political perspective as well as from a central bank perspective and what they can do to offset the risks of the trade war. The the rally at the beginning of the year was basically built on a three-legged stool. You had cheap valuations to start with and optimism over the growth outlook given where we were in the fourth quarter of last year, which was essentially that the U.S. economy was at risk of going into recession, a dovish turn by central banks, as well as optimism around a trade deal. You've knocked out one of those legs um, with the rising escalation in trade tensions here with China. Um, so then you get back to, well, dovish central banks help at the margin. Um, the growth outlook isn't as bad as it was in the fourth quarter of last year, but it's not that good. And the earnings outlook isn't that good. So why should markets rally um, after rallying 15% this year at the levels they're currently at? So I think there's more downside potential from here than there is upside, even in a good outcome in the trade war. How much downside? Uh, it's tough to say. I mean, look, you're 3 to 4% down um, off the peak, somewhere in that range. Um, the U.S. equity market is still trading at roughly a 16 and a half times forward P.E. I think there's too much optimism over earnings growth. So if earnings estimates actually come down as we move through the second and third quarter, the markets in theory get richer, right, unless that multiple declines. So I think a multiple somewhere in the range of sort of 15 to 15 and a half is fairer value for the U.S. equity market, which means you've got probably you know, somewhere in the somewhere in the range of about five to seven percent additional downside. So you started off commenting on Paul Sweeney's excitement about another referendum in Great Britain, and I have to wonder how much of a game changer that would be from an asset perspective. Currently, uh, looking at the pound, uh, that is gaining versus the dollar, but not by that much. So it seems like it's not exactly as if the markets are pricing in this possibility. But is this something that would materially change your outlook for European assets? Uh, yes, it would make us, so we're already on a relative basis, we're already more optimistic about European equities, um, even with all the turmoil that you've seen happening in the UK over the last six months or so, um, all the Theresa May deals coming to a vote, getting rejected, et cetera, um, then we are relative to the US. It doesn't mean we expect gangbuster returns in Europe, but expectations are lower. Earnings growth is actually better based on consensus expectations in Europe than it is in the US. And we think the dollar is overvalued and should decline versus the euro. And that helps you from a total return perspective if you're a US-based investor. So you added in a second referendum with a likelihood that it actually gets passed, that they stay um, in the euro, in the European Union. I think that would definitely help sentiment and provide um, you know, a little bit of more uh, bullish upside for European equities as a whole. But I'd be a little bit cautious. I was being a little bit cynical about jumping on Paul's bandwagon there just because we've seen so many false starts over the past six months. But if it does move down that direction, I think we can, um, you know, we can get more bullish on Europe. John, I'm looking at the WIRP function on the Bloomberg terminal, which uh, and it shows that the you know investors are looking roughly 70% of investors are looking for a rate cut by the Fed uh, by year end. What is your view? So I think that's look rates are going to head lower at some point, right? We're near the, near the end of the cycle than we are near the beginning. Uh, I think there's a little bit too much optimism in um, the likelihood of a rate cut. I think part of that is because of the escalation in the trade war and the fear that um, if we do put 25% tariffs, that does move forward on, on the remaining $300 billion of Chinese imports, and then China retaliates. They can't retaliate in kind, but they can do other things to try and hurt our economy indirectly. 
um, that the Fed will react and they'll automatically cut rates. But what everyone's forgetting is that that adds to inflationary pressures. We saw that, you know, the primary example being washing machine prices at the beginning of last year. And so you'd get a direct follow through to um, core goods prices and inflation going up, not to mention wage inflation, which has been rising for the past three to four years. So I think the Fed would cut rates, but probably not as quickly and as much as the market is hoping for. John Mackay, one quick question. High yield bonds, pro or anti? Anti. Really? Why? Do you want me to elaborate? You've got 30 um, seconds. Go so ahead. They're, they're, I'll give you So the quick story is valuations are way too rich. Um, if you think corporate earnings are slowing down, the amount of debt that um, corporates in the U.S. have taken on over the past seven to eight years, um, they're going to have to pay a price for that, not suggesting a, you know, a, a quick rise in the default rate. But you will see companies losing access to the capital markets, and thus investors will demand a higher risk premium, meaning high-yield spreads will have to widen from current levels, which are around 360 to 380 basis points off. I think we think there are better options out there for investors to get yield. I would um, throw non-agency securitized out there, as well as certain parts of the emerging market debt universe. John Mackay, well done. Thank you so much for joining us. John Mackay, head of sales, uh, focusing on wealth management solutions at Schroeder's based in New York. Well, yesterday was an odd day for the pending Sprint T-Mobile merger. First, the FCC said that it was inclined to approve the deal. Then just a couple of hours later, the DOJ said not so fast. So hopefully our next guest can help us clear things up. Uh, Jennifer Rees, a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Jen, I have to admit in my 30 years roughly of following communications deals, I don't ever recall the DOJ and the FCC you know, opining on the same day and having different views. What do you think is going on here? You know, it's really strange, and you are exactly right, because I did some research on this and found the only one instance of the FCC and DOJ disagreeing on ultimate outcome, and this was in the 1970s. So you're 30 years Before my time. There. Before <laughs> your time, Paul, exactly. So you're you're right on that. This is really strange. Um, it, it's not, it, do, it remains to be seen what happens here, too. It just may be that the DOJ needs a little bit more than what the companies have offered up to the FCC. And I think it's actually not surprising, because, you know, Sprint and T-Mobile have offered to divest one of Sprint's uh, prepaid brands, and they have two brands. Now, the other brand, Virgin Mobile, is very small compared to Boost Mobile, but still, the DOJ would want them to divest their entire 12% share, and they're not offering to do that. So it may be that they just need to divest both brands, or it may be that they need to divest more and not just the brands. In other words, satellites, more business assets than what they've offered up to the FCC. So I think they may still have some room here to bargain with the Department of Justice. Well, certainly that's what the markets are betting on because we're not seeing enough of a sell-off in Sprint shares, uh, which are down about 2% today following the 19% gain yesterday. You're not seeing enough of a mm -hmm. decline in the bonds of Sprint either to sort of represent that the markets are writing off this deal. I mean, still it is being baked in. I'm trying to understand what could have happened. Don't the DOJ uh, and doesn't don't, don't the DOJ and FCC speak to each other? Yeah, they've been communicating the whole time, you know, during the year-long investigation, and they've said publicly that they been uh, coordinating and communicating. So, so the dual message yesterday was a little bit odd. It, it, it's hard to say what is happening there, but the FCC clearly wanted to come out with their decision. They were ready. They had extra time. They, their clock doesn't run until early June, so they didn't have to say anything when they did. And the Department of Justice may have been reacting to what they were seeing in the news, an immediate reaction by many that, well, it's a given that the Department of Justice now is going 
the clear. And maybe they just wanted to make the point, look, not so fast. We do our own independent investigation. We have a different standard. And in fact, we may need more. And in my, I'm not surprised by it because I do actually think based on their standards, they do need more. You know, when, when they accept a divestiture to, to remedy a deal, they need to replace all of the competition lost by virtue of the merger. 12% is being absorbed in this prepaid market. That entire 12% needs to go to a new competitor. And that isn't what Sprint and T-Mobile have offered up the FCC. Now, this is just on the prepaid side. It could also be that the Department of Justice has some issues on the postpaid side. So the market's reaction may also be a little bit too optimistic in that it's unclear to me whether they are resolved on the postpaid side. The numbers don't look quite as bad there in terms of the market share combined, which is at about 24%, and the concentration numbers. And it's in that area that they're going to look at the pro-competitive consumer benefits that could come from this and balance that against some potential harm. But it's not a given that the DOJ is over the hump there either. It's interesting, you know, this when the, President Trump and the Republican administration came into power, the expectation was, okay, let's do M&A deals. The DOJ is not going to mm-hmm. be a problem. But they were very, very tough on AT&T, Time Warner. They appear to be taking a pretty strong stance here. What do you think is going on? You know, the, the AT&T Time Warner deal that was a big surprise, and I think it took a lot of people, particularly in the antitrust community, by surprise when that happened. Uh, and I think some of it just may simply be the fact that there was a lot of press about the fact that this new Republican administration would be so easy on mergers. And, you know, the fact is that if you go back in history and you look at statistics, the difference between Democratic administrations and Republican administrations in merger enforcement isn't really only incremental. It really isn't as big as I think the reaction was when Donald Trump was elected and started to put appoint his own people. You know, the difference tends to be in pursuing monopolistic conduct and things like that. And the, the Republicans do tend to look at efficiencies and give efficiencies a little more weight, let's say, than the Democrats. But it really is only an incremental difference. So I think the aggressiveness should have been expected in this age of these great big mergers and consolidated industries. Yeah, still, though, a real head-scratcher in terms yes. of the dual uh, messaging yesterday from the DOJ and the FCC. Jennifer Rhee, thank you very much. Really illuminating. Jennifer Rhee is Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, we are 10-plus years into this financial cycle. We've got the Fed on the sidelines and financial markets, quite frankly, this year performed exceptionally well, despite the near-term volatility. To get a sense of where we go from here, uh, we're pleased to welcome our next guest, Krishna Mamani, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income for Oppenheimer Funds, and Peter Strachowski, uh, Portfolio Manager for Oppenheimer Funds. They join us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I point out that Krishna and Peter recently celebrated their 10-year anniversary of the firm's investment-grade debt team which manages over $6.6 billion, primarily investment-grade assets. So these folks have been doing this uh, for a while. So, uh, Krisha, let's start with you. Um, The rising trade tensions, how are you positioning the portfolio for what might be a prolonged heightened sense of trade uh, concerns? Well, so the first thing with respect to uh, trade tensions is the fact that it's not a good outcome for anyone, despite what uh, Trump or President Xi may be saying. It's bad for China. It's bad for the U.S. But I think what we need to focus on is the magnitude of that badness, if you will. So it's uh, the, it shaves off 
roughly half a percent from U.S. GDP and probably slightly more than that uh, from uh, the Chinese GDP. Uh, so it's a it's not a good outcome, but it's a manageable outcome. And I think our expectation is, as a result of this, the likelihood of Fed easing increases in 2020 and the likelihood of the Chinese policymakers trying to stimulate their uh, economy to help it, uh, help support that economy uh, is, is probably increasing as well. So uh, it's not a good outcome, but it's not the end of the world. After the derating that took place last week, our expectation is still that markets go higher and global equities is still the place to be. Well, that's what I was, was going to say, is that it sounds like this is a perfect environment for risk assets because uh, it sounds like, from what you're saying, there's going to be more stimulus and Fed easing, and certainly we have the ECB and others also moving into an easy stance. Uh, Peter, I'm just wondering from the fixed income standpoint, from an investment-grade debt standpoint, uh, which area of the market looks most attractive attractive given that backdrop? Okay, so I think uh, despite what you hear or read somewhere else, I think that the U.S. corporate sector uh, still offers decent value over treasuries. On average, the spreads on the triple B-rated bonds are – 150 basis points uh, over a course of five to seven years. So that's that's still decent value with low volatility. And we're still in a credit cycle. Uh, as far as, you know, we, we tend to look six to 12 months out, but I think over the next three years, if the Fed doesn't move or Fed is very cautious, credit cycle is going to continue and corporate debt will do well. And same with asset backs because the U.S. consumer is doing very well. Balance sheets at, uh, at households are strong and uh, that debt will continue to perform very well. So, Christian, are you of the opinion, like when Lisa and I look on the Bloomberg terminal, there's roughly an 80% odds of a rate cut by the end of the year. Is that kind of where you think rates are going in that time frame? Well, so I, I think the markets have kind of uh, gotten a little ahead of themselves. I, I think uh, while the data today is soft, our expectation is still that in the back half of the year, data probably uh, improves. And as a result, the Fed probably doesn't cut rates this year. Having said that, if there is any bit of give on the economy, the Fed is probably going to be far more proactive because it's really worried about the trade issues. And uh, their reaction function with respect to the, the, the moment they see the weakness to how they're going to react is going to be much shorter with trade than anything else that we have faced of late. One thing I'm struggling to understand is what are some potential surprises that could upend this thesis? Because recently we've seen others buying into it. We've seen money going into investment grade bond funds. It's been a sweet spot of sorts over the past uh, month or so. What's the risk to this view, Peter? So the first and foremost risk to any bond portfolio is, is higher interest rates. But I think given the current regime and the fact that the Fed actually paused because we don't really see any price pressures, I think the Fed's going to continue to stay on a, on the sideline and be very watchful. And I think that risk is eliminated. The other risk is volatility coming back into the market from some unforeseen source where there's large draw on, on, on uh, debt because people want to buy equities. For that, equities would have to sell off. So I don't really see it. Uh, anytime soon. So, but Krishna, I guess that it raises a question, is the Fed more in control here? Is the Fed more important or is it the ECB and the BOJ and the fact that the amount of negative yielding debt has surged to a a new post-2016 high? Well, so uh, I think the Fed was the most important central bank uh, from a pivot standpoint in in 2018 because they were the furthest along on the tightening cycle. So them pulling back, I think, was very, very important. 
on a go forward basis fed is a is in it for a ride effectively they don't control anything they're basically going to be reacting to whatever happens in the marketplace people where uh, central banks that can actually be far more uh, proactive as to reactive is probably ecb and bank of japan fed is um, at the end of the day the most important central bank but right now it's not in control of anything not in control of anything. That's reassuring. Uh, <laughs> Peter, give us a sense within the investment grade space, kind of where you guys are uh, seeing value today versus maybe some others. Okay, like so, like I mentioned before, uh, good quality corporate debt, not necessarily single A rated, but still investment grade. Uh, good asset backs. Are there industry sectors? I mean, are you triple True, uh, but I mean, I'm looking at financials, health, you know, healthcare, those, those type. Are there sectors that uh, you like? Uh, Sure. As, as regulated as the financial companies are today, there is always a good value. Post 09, uh, 08. Okay. Uh, Deutsche Bank? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a U.S. company. I know they operate here, but that is not a U.S. company. Uh, but uh, the, the, the main thing is that there is good debt. It's been picked over. You have to be very careful at this point in the credit cycle, but it doesn't mean there aren't any deals to, to be gotten. Krishna, since you're here and you oversee all of fixed income, what about high yield at this point? Well, so I, I think high yield represents uh, good value. Uh, it's not as good value as it was, let's say, three, four months ago, but it's still, uh, still pretty good value. I think the, the, the question you have to ask yourself is, how are you going to source income in this environment where overall policy rates and 10-year treasury rates are relatively low? And for that, you'll have to take meaningful amount of risk because otherwise you'll be, you know, two and change percent is the maximum amount of yield that you can generate and you need 4%, 5%, what are you going to do? High yield is one, loans is another, and emerging market local currency debt, I think is still still, still good value. You know, because think about it, from a global perspective, there are two certainties. Inflation on a global basis is still going down, and emerging market real yields are still meaningfully higher than what you can find on the uh, on the developed market. So that is over the next two, three, five years, real yields in emerging markets are going down. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, the overall nominal rates in emerging markets are probably going down as well. So it's a good environment for emerging market debt. Krishna Mamani, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income at Hopper, and Oppenheimer and Funds, and Peter Strolkowski, uh, Portfolio Manager also at Oppenheimer Funds, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thank you so much. Celebrating their 10-year anniversary of the firm's investment-grade debt team. Uh, they help uh, oversee, or they do oversee, the Oppenheimer Total Return Bond Fund. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.